This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. In Australia, it was once taken for granted that you'd be better off now than you were in the past, that the future of you and your children would be easier, not harder. But as inflation skyrockets and wages plummet, Australians are earning less and living standards all over the country are falling. Meanwhile, the biggest corporations have raked in record profits, while the lowest income earners are being hit hardest. Today, I'm talking to Head of News Mike Tisha and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about whether the cost of living crisis is really a wages crisis. It's Friday, the 18th of November. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Mike, we had some new wages data released this week showing the biggest drop in real wages since records began. What does that really mean and were we expecting it? I guess we probably were expecting it. If you'd been following the figures closely, I'm not sure if everyone was aware that it was going to be the biggest drop since records began, but everyone knows that wages have been increasing somewhat and inflation has been running at extremely high levels. So the gap between the two is wider than it has been for a very long time. So that is essentially why we've been writing so many stories about what we're calling the cost of living crisis. I think we can discuss whether that's a good term or not. But that gap between increasing wages and the increase in prices is just a really stark and obvious one. So Patrick, why aren't wages growing at a high enough rate? Part of it is just that inflation is running extremely hot at the moment, and that's a product of the Russian invasion of Ukraine having an impact on oil prices, and that flows throughout the economy. But really, the slow growth in wages has is something that's not recent. It's been happening for a number of decades. And it actually has been a, a deliberate design of governments over many years to keep wages mm. in check. Part of it is a fear of a wages breakout under inflation where wage growth demands from employees and unions feeds further inflation. And that fear has been so great since the 1980s that governments have really tried to keep a cap on, on wages over that time. So a lot has changed since the 1980s, Mike. Is it still right to hold on to these kind of notions of a wage price spiral? A lot of factors have changed that mean we do need to rethink that relationship. Declining union membership, for one thing, means uh, workers have lost a lot of the power to bargain for higher wages. The whole industrial relations system has changed since the days of the Accord. Introduction of enterprise bargaining means that workers who are in unions have found it difficult to negotiate the kind of wage increases they used to. State governments have held down public sector wages over many years. I think the extreme impact of the Ukraine war and the pandemic has sort of definitively shown that that old connection where wages would drive inflation the hardest has been broken and, and we do have to rethink that entirely. And I think it's in that context that we should be discussing this question of wage increases now. One other element that plays into the decline in the growth of wages 
is casualisation. And Tony Burke went a bit into casualisation in his National Press Club address on Wednesday. So the official rates show that there hasn't really been any change in the rate of casualisation in Australian employment. But unofficially, there's been huge changes in the economy over the last couple of decades. You know, people classed as self-employed, even though they might be a delivery driver for Amazon or Uber Mm. Eats and working their entire week on those platforms, they're still classed as a self-employed contractor. There's people who are classed as part-time, even though they may be working three hours officially a week, but they're picking up more casual shifts or overtime. So when people are classed as contractors or have an employment relationship that's different from a full-time employee, it makes it more difficult for them to unionise and bargain and drive higher rates of pay. So the government response to this is partly the bill which they're calling the Secure Pay Better Jobs Bill. Mike, what exactly is this bill? The most controversial parts of it have been that it makes it easier through their unions primarily to negotiate across more than one employer, to involve whole industries or broader parts of of industries in bargaining. Um, There are other changes which uh, give more power to the Fair Work Commission to arbitrate where workers and employers can't reach agreement. That's a big change that should in theory, or at least the government hopes, will help to increase wages. Obviously, the employers are not happy about that because they wouldn't be. (laughs) Look, I think some of the provisions in the new bill are really aimed at a bit of housekeeping um, to the Fair Work Act that, you know, Labor has come into power. There are things that they've wanted to change for a while that aren't necessarily working in the bill at the moment. We've seen this week with the industrial dispute between a tugboat operator, Switzer, and the Maritime Union of Australia. That's gone to Fair Work, who have intervened because of the threat of supply chains before Christmas. Uh, they've been allowed to intervene in that place under the existing laws because it presents a threat to the entire economy. Um, the new bill would actually lower that threshold slightly to uh, allow Fair Work to intervene where there's an intractable dispute. And That means that, uh, uh, you know, this threat of industrial, really disruptive industrial action, the Fair Work could intervene earlier and force parties into arbitration negotiation much earlier before it gets to this point. So as Mike mentioned, there has been, you know, quite vociferous opposition to this bill from multiple business groups. What are their main sticking points? Industry-wide bargaining has been a really big sticking point, particularly for small businesses, many of them have raised concerns. Uh, Initially, when this was raised at the Jobs and Skills Summit, there was kind of a reasonably warm reception to it amongst Mm. um, the small business groups. But I think as people started going through the details, there were concerns raised by some would, you know, add to costs. The coalition have been campaigning quite hard against this, saying it will allow kind of 1970s-style unions into small business workplaces and disrupt Australian businesses, but Labor's sticking to its guns at this point. The question is whether they will have the numbers to get it through the Senate. And at the moment, they're having to deal with two senators, uh, Jackie Lambie and Pocock, who um, are, you know, still making their minds up on it. Jackie Lambie seems quite opposed to it. Pocock is currently talking to his constituency. He held a town hall on Wednesday night to talk to people in Canberra about what they thought about the bill, and he's yet to make a decision on it. But, Mike, we know that, you know, businesses are opposed. We also know their profits have gone up while wages have gone backwards in the past decade. How can they justify opposing a bill that Labor claims will increase much-needed wage rises? It's 
evidently profits that are actually driving inflation, not wages. There was a study by the Australia Institute in July showed that inflation was being driven way more by profit growth than by labour costs. Meanwhile, corporate profits are at record levels and that is the main driver. So from the government point of view, I think they're on pretty solid ground and have made that argument pretty effectively. Jim Chalmers has made that point repeatedly that wages are not the cause of inflation and therefore it's necessary to do something about them uh, regardless of the arguments from business. And Patrick, Robert Reich has written in The Guardian's pages about this on a global scale. What does he have to say? Look, he's got a really good point. He's saying prices are rising and feeding inflation. They're rising pretty much because corporations have the power to raise them. They're able to raise them and they're using inflation as an excuse. And the you know, Federal Reserve in, in the US and the Reserve Bank of Australia are really applying the wrong medicine to fix this problem. They're raising interest rates, which have, you know, huge ramifications for homeowners and for small businesses, but it's really not going to affect those large corporations because they're already running very healthy profits of, you know, he uses the example of Procter & Gamble, one of the world's largest companies. They recently put up the price of all their staple goods, like, you know, nappies and toilet paper, citing rising costs for raw materials. But it was complete rubbish. Procter & Gamble continues to rake in, like, huge profits in the quarter ending in September. It had a 24% profit margin. Mm. Consumers have no choice. If Coles or Woolworths or, you know, the big grocery companies put up prices, consumers don't really have many other options to go to other places. It's the same with the oil and gas companies as well, who are making huge profits. At the same time, they're arguing against any form of taxation which could be used to compensate low-income households. And I think the point to make is while corporate profits are at a record high, the impact it's having on particularly the lowest income households is really devastating. We've been doing a lot of reporting about the struggles that people have been facing just paying bills. You know, this week we reported on what people were doing in their households to save power or to uh, make ends meet. There were people who were talking about not using their lights at all, living in the dark because they couldn't, they were worried about paying their electricity bill. Mm. In the David Pocock forum that Patrick referred to on Wednesday, he talked to, about the working homeless. He talked about nurses who were saying their colleagues were living in caravan parks. We've written a lot about people who are driven to the marginal housing options, like even living in tents. People who are in low-waged occupations are falling into that category where they are really struggling to even put a roof over their head, you know, when we're talking at high levels about wages and the relationship between wages and profits and inflation and so on, it's really important not to lose focus on what that actually means on a very concrete personal level. Mm. So we've got this really tricky problem where inflation is very high, wages aren't growing at a fast enough pace, but giving away money to people could potentially fuel inflation even further. Do we know what economists are saying about what possible solutions may be? In the short term, if there is a consensus among economists, it's perhaps rather than giving out, you know, just giving out a basic handout to people, as, for example, was done in the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. But what they could do is something like windfall tax on the gas and oil companies, that's going to reduce their profits, give people a very specific saving on their fuel bills, on their energy bills. Patrick, if you think that's a fair summary of where economists are at, is that would be the least inflationary way to relieve some of the pressures on, on households. 
It's an interesting question, and I think that we ran a a panel of economists recently who talked about this question of what could the government do to provide some relief to households yet not feed into inflation. And it's true that, you know, anything that the government does in terms of fiscal policy will feed aggregate demand. But overall in the economy, you've got to look at it in perspective. And, you know, if you're targeting relief at the lowest income earners, it's actually not a great deal of money in greater economy, but it would make a real difference for many households. You know, even 20 bucks a week as a fuel allowance would make an incredible difference for the lives of people who are on welfare or are very low paid. So Angela Jackson from Impact Economics says that, you know, the government should look at that type of thing, increasing rent allowance uh, temporarily or a temporary energy supplement increase to cope with rising energy costs. And she also makes a point, which I think is quite a good one, is that poverty itself actually has a cost to the economy in terms of workforce Mm. participation, in terms of its impact on people's mental and physical health. So we need to be aware of what an economic cost there is to actually people in in this very difficult situation. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that even the IMF says governments should be providing relief to lowest income earners. Hardly a leftist stronghold, is it? (laughs) Finally, there was a very interesting survey out of the UK that found journalists were vital in covering the cost of living crisis. I wonder, Mike, what you think our role is in covering these kinds of events? Obviously, it's to try to make complicated economic calculations accessible and comprehensible to readers. But I think as well as that, it's really to shine a light on what the impacts are of economic decisions on people at the sharp end of them. It's really important that we show that people are really in quite dire circumstances and not just a few people. Like ANU did a survey earlier this year that found one in four Australians were struggling to make ends meet. In the current circumstances, it's not just a few people, but it is easy for some people to live in bubbles in certain, depending on their circumstances. And so I think our job is really to pierce those bubbles and bring the reality of what the cost of living crisis means to everyone's attention. Look, I totally agree with Mike that the starting point for this conversation should be about how it impacts people's lives, whether people can put food on the table, whether people can afford to, uh, you know, provide for their families, buy school books to send their kids to school. That has to be fundamentally the starting point of where we have these discussions. And the panel of economists that I referred to before with Angela Jackson also featured John Quiggan, an economist from uh, the University of Queensland. And he made the point of the framing of this problem in terms of cost of living distracts from the real problem, which is actually the decline in the real purchasing power of our wages, which have remained stagnant for years and wages are now falling behind inflation at a record pace. And I think that that feeds into the other way that we need to report this issue, which is to question the economic orthodoxy, which we see in a lot of other publications, treating any growth in wages or any push for higher wages as a problem, that it will feed into a wage price spiral. You know, more than 2.7 million workers across Australia got a pay rise under the decision in June that came in in October, and that was 5%. But has that fed into a wage price spiral? Not at all. You know, we haven't seen that eventuate, even though we had warnings of that from business at the time. We had warnings that small business will go under because people are getting a few bucks extra a week. 
it hasn't happened. And I think our responsibility is to actually question some of those assumptions that that get pushed around by vested interest groups and instead be looking at things like corporate profits and, um, you know, whether we should be using some of the record profits that companies are making and investing that into relief for some of the poorest and worst off households in Australia. Next, mascots and the Murray Darling. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Patrick, what was it for you this week? Look, I really loved a piece that uh, Tori Shepard, our reporter in Adelaide, did for us, and it's about the massive flows that are coming into the lower Murray from all the floods that have hit inland New South Wales and Victoria. Those waters are making their way down the Murray-Darling system um, towards the lower lakes and the Coorong uh, wetlands, which are at the mouth of the Murray River in South Australia. And that's been an area which has kind of been hit quite hard since the El Nino droughts and they've had problems of salinity, not enough water for wildlife down there. But all of this water is great news because what it's going to do is come through and flush out all those lakes and um, get rid of all that salt buildup, provide a feast for all the birds and wildlife. And we're already seeing birds flying in and um, wildlife making its way there. And it's just going to be this explosion of life and and greenery and colour and um, uh, and it's really great news. And it's kind of provides a nice flip side to seeing the devastation that these floods have obviously caused in, in large areas of the country. But we have to also remember that this is actually a natural cycle as well as being exacerbated by climate change. Big floods have happened many times throughout our history down the Murray and, and they do have a natural function which is to flush out those lower lakes, open up the Murray mouth to the sea and um, let fish in, let bird life come back into the area. And it's just it's a, it's a nice positive story out of all the um, heartbreak and devastation that's been caused by the floods elsewhere. Mike, what can you not get out of your head? I wouldn't say I can't get it out of my head, but <laughs> <laughs> I was struck by a completely frivolous story this week. Um, we've been talking about a lot of serious stuff, and this one was about the uh, mascots were announced for the Paris 2024 Olympics. They are based on, obviously, when you look at them, they are based on the Liberty cap uh, worn during the French Revolution. It's kind of a red, it's like a, sort of looks like a nightcap, I guess. But that is not how they were seen when they were brought into the public view. There was a lot of comment that, in fact, they look like, quotes, a clitoris in trainers. <laughs> They're like, yeah, they, they have legs um, <laughs> and they're wearing trainers. And so that was unfortunately, well, fortunately, where the conversation went. I think it's a great news story. Well, Five that, years ago, ten years ago, we wouldn't have even known what that, a clitoris looked like. That is the conversation. I mean, firstly, Paris 2024 tweeted that the mascots are, quotes, sporty, love to party and are so French. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it seems like a natural thing after that to, I mean, maybe it's, uh, you know, I don't want to um, stereotype French people, but seems like a natural course of the conversation to then go. To it was the French scientists who were the first to uh, properly do the 3D version of the clitoris. So it is very French. It is very French. But in London, to give the UK its due, there is a vagina museum in London. I did not know this before mm, this I week. Um, they 
they posted on Twitter a marked-up version of the mascots pointing out the various parts of the body <laughs> that they thought they represented uh, to sort of, you know, increase people's education about the clitoris. So, yes, it is in that sense a very good news story. A triumph but in so many it's ways. also kind of a funny story <laughs> that whenever there's a mascot announced for the Olympic Games or the World Cup or whatever, people always love to see something else in it that is not intended. <laughs> I also like the uh, French Olympic logo, which was announced back in 2019, but I don't know if you've seen it, but it's kind of like an Audrey Tattoo star figure with a smart bob and a silhouette. And people at the time said, you know, the, the French Olympic logo tumbles out of bed on a Parisian morning. She tussles her messy bob, dons a breast and striped shirt and ballet flats and, uh, you know, goes downstairs to grab a baguette before texting two men who are pursuing her romantically. <laughs> you know, on and on. It's very funny. Um, you can find all this and more on the full story page on The Guardian's website. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks very much. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. And the executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. Full Story will be back in your feed on Monday. We'll see you then.